Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog and this blogcast. So great to have you back here um, or welcome. If it's your first time, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed for you if it is your first time, but, but glad to have you anyway. Um, boy, you got a lot of broadcasts to catch up on. We've done a lot of them. Um, my name's Seth Harris. Uh, I uh, am a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change. I'm your host uh, for this discussion, as I often am. Um, this broadcast is another in our series of labor reporter roundtables. Uh, I really like these. I talk to reporters all the time. I have immense respect for them. I think they do a very difficult job very, very well. Some of them are excellent, really terrific and smart. You have to be really smart to do that job. We had three terrific labor reporters to our long list of guests and these labor reporter roundtables today. Uh, we It's an ongoing conversation about labor news, labor developments, the labor movement and the process of covering workers and worker power and collective action and, and unions. Uh, this conversation uh, that you're going to watch in just a minute was recorded uh, during the afternoon of Monday, November 6th. So there may have been some developments since then. The news marches on, uh, as the old newsreels used to say. We covered a long list of topics ranging from the state of worker power in journalism to the very big question about whether the current strike wave and uh, worker power and collective action and worker activism are going to continue, whether this is the new normal that we're seeing. Uh, there was even some discussion of Israel and Palestine during the discussion arising out of the, the truly terrible events that we've seen in that part of the world. I also asked the panelists to tell us about the big story of 2024, predict the big story of 2024 that we're not talking about in 2023. I, I, I think some of their answers are going to surprise you. They surprised me a little bit. Our guests for this conversation are Kim Kelly, who's an independent journalist and author and organizer. She has been a regular labor columnist for Teen Vogue since 2018. She's also the author of Fight Like Hell, the Untold History of American Labor. We were proud to review her book on the blog. After you watch this broadcast, go read the review of her book, and that will motivate you to go get her book. Go buy her book. Uh, Michael Senato is a labor reporter for The Guardian U.S. Uh, his writing has been published in The New York Times. Of course, The Guardian, Gizmodo, The Nation, HuffPost, and a bunch of other places. Terrific reporter. And Jordan Zakarin is a reporter and producer for More Perfect Union. Uh, he writes and reports, produces, directs, and edits uh, a variety of kinds of video pieces about politics and policy and, and the revived workers' rights movement in the United States. And his work is just terrific, as is the work of More Perfect Union more generally. They're really valuable, new kind of news outlets. So it's a great group. It's a great conversation. Uh, but before... We get to that conversation. Let's talk about a little bit of labor news. Now, Kim Kelly and I, uh, during the broadcast, were talking, and we agreed that we feel like we're drinking out of a fire hose of labor news right now. There is just so much labor news that it's very hard to sort through it all and to figure out what you should lift up. So what I'm going to try to do is just focus on three stories here. I'm going to try not to repeat too much what I talked about in the last broadcast, which just dropped two days ago. I'm recording this. Or actually, it, uh, yeah, did it drop two days ago? It's very recent. Um, where I talked about, uh, no, it dropped today. I'm sorry. I'm recording this on Tuesday, November 7th. So we put out a broadcast today. I'm recording this on the same day. I'm going to try not to repeat what I said in that broadcast. I'll cover one of the same stories. But there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on in labor world right now. And I think that's a really, really good thing. So the first is a story we've talked about before. I wanted to note as sort of an update on the story that SAG-AFTRA, which has been on strike since July, has not accepted the last best and final offer made by the Hollywood studios. Um, the negotiating committee wrote a note to the membership. And, and here's what they said. And I'm quoting here, quote, there are several essential items on which we still do not have agreement, including AI, artificial intelligence. And now, 
In our last podcast, the one that dropped today, Tuesday, uh, November 7th, I explained the options that are available to both sides when an employer makes a last, best, and final offer. Uh, they're dictated by law, the options that are available. SAG-AFTRA chose the option of making a counteroffer to the last, best, and final offer, essentially saying this is not the last offer. It may be your best so far. We think you can do better. Uh, now we'll see what the studios do. Maybe by the time you see this on Thursday of this week, two days from now, uh, you'll know how the studios responded. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, second story. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge a very important collective action involving non-union workers. Non-union pharmacists across the United States have been walking off the job in a coordinated action around the country to protest unsafe working conditions and inadequate staffing at some of the largest chain stores. Um, it's a, this action is a really important reminder to all of us who talk about labor stuff that you don't have to be union to strike. Your right to strike is protected even if you are not a union member, right? Your right to protected concerted activity is protected if you are an employee, period, hard stop. And these pharmacists uh, uh, are, that's what they're doing. They're out on strike or temporary walkouts. Uh, we know from the Cornell ILR Labor Action Tracker that non-union workers all over the country strike frequently. Now, their strikes tend to be shorter. They tend to be more focused on particular issues. They're not comprehensive strikes like, say, the UAW strike, the SAG-AFTRA strike, uh, the Teamsters negotiations where a strike was threatened. Um, and also their strikes don't tend to lead to collective bargaining agreements because, of course, they're non-union and you can't have a collective bargaining agreement unless you have a union in place. And that's one of the dangers that non-union workers face is that if an employer makes a commitment to them in order to get them to go back to work or to not walk out again in the future, that commitment is not at all enforceable in the way that a collective bargaining agreement is. So. I think it's fascinating that the strike wave is extending well beyond organized labor to non-union workers. It's extending to professionals like uh, pharmacists, just as it's extending to professionals like teachers and doctors and others. Um, they just feel their working conditions are made intolerable. In this case, by issues that are very common in the healthcare industry, staffing is a huge issue in the healthcare industry, and those companies really have failed to address they're big staffing issues. They are short-staffed. They are uh, not hiring workers either to maximize profit, to increase the amount of money that they're able to take out of these operations, or because they just have not developed sufficient talent pipelines. Um, in either case, it's unfair to the workers. It's unsafe for pharmacists and other healthcare workers. So maybe the time has come for more expansive organizing in the pharmacy sector. We'll be, it'll be interesting to see. If we see a bunch of unions cropping up in pharmacies all across the United States, that's what this uh, non-union action suggests may be needed, is we need, may need unions. I think we probably do need unions in those pharmacies. Third, on the day we are publishing this blogcast on the blog, which is going to be Thursday, November 9th, President Biden is going to Belvedere, Illinois, and he'll be visiting a Stellantis assembly plant that was idled last February, but that Stellantis, as a result of the negotiations with the OEW, is now going to reopen and it's going to invest several billion dollars in it. And uh, reports are, and let me just say, you don't have to be a, a reporter on the level of our guests on this broadcast to, to have figured this out. But the reports are that President Biden is going to tout the UAW's big contract with Stellantis and the other two automakers. Um, I expect that he's also going to talk about the reindustrialization of America, the return of manufacturing jobs, the onshoring of manufacturing facilities, the big investments that are being made in manufacturing across the United States. I, I don't think it shows that I have any special insight. I've just been predicting that's what he's going to do based on my experience and knowledge. Um, but let me also say, I don't think President Biden is going to try to take credit for the UAW. Uh, contract the UAW's success on the picket line. He 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 went to visit the picket line, um, but he didn't staff the picket line. 
The UAW's members did that. The UAW's members set up that picket line. The UAW's members voted to authorize the strike. The UAW's leaders set the strategy for that strike, and the members went along with that strategy. Arguably, President Biden, I think it's more than an argument, it's my view, that President Biden created the current environment uh, that allowed success at the bargaining table for the UAW and for other unions. In fact, um, Bloomberg put out a report today, Tuesday, November 7th, that shows that over the course of the last three years, unions have done a lot better at the bargaining table than they have done since the turn of the century, the turn of the 21st century. Um, they've gotten better wage gains. They've gotten other more significant improvements in their contracts. Um, now, again, I don't think the president gets all of the credit for that, but the environment has changed. The culture has changed. The politics have changed. The economics have changed. But also worker activism has changed. Worker militancy has changed. Union strategy has changed. Union leadership has changed. Union bargaining objectives have changed. It all goes together to produce better outcomes for the workers who are represented by unions and to make organizing a union more appealing to more workers. I think that's a very important point. And I'm quite confident. I have no doubt in my mind that President Biden understands that uh, and that, that he'll say some version of that uh, when he speaks in Belvedere on Thursday, November 9th. So I'll be interested to hear what he has to say. I think he's going to be really enthusiastic. Uh, you know, reopening a plant, an assembly plant in Belvedere, Illinois, uh, in parts of the country that used to be called the Rust Belt and aren't called the Rust Belt anymore uh, because they're coming back with manufacturing jobs. I think the president's going to be pretty enthusiastic about that. And I think uh, the UAW members who get to see him speak there also will be enthusiastic. Uh, all right. So that's labor news for this blogcast. Now on to our conversation with Kim Kelly, Michael Sonato, and Jordan Zakarin, a Labor Reporters Roundtable. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to drop back in with two things. First of all, I wanted to let you know that this blogcast is made possible in part by the generous support of Union Built PC, our friends at Union Built PC. They have been serving the labor movement's hardware and software needs for more than 22 years. So we're delighted to have them as one of our sponsors, Union Built PC. We organize labor. That's the first thing I wanted to tell you. The second thing is, since I recorded the introduction to this blogcast, um, SAG-AFTRA and the Hollywood Studios have made a tentative agreement, which is good news, I think. Uh, we're going to have to get some of the details and analyze those, but the union seems to be willing to accept it. So that's good news that that strike is going to come to an end. I'm recording this on Thursday morning. We expect the strike to come to an end later today. So labor news after labor news, uh, sort of breaking news here. First thing in the morning, Thursday. Uh, now let's get back to the interview. Well, let me start by saying thanks to all of you for being here today. These are these are among the favorite things that I that we do on the blog. For me, I just think it's a lot of fun. To, I talk to reporters all the time, and I love getting inside the reporting. And also, reporters really know what's going on, and so it's a it's a great way to get analysis and thought and insight into what's going on in the world of labor. So I'm so grateful to all of you for being here today. Let's jump right in. Um, I'll tell you something you all know very well, and that is that uh, the last few months have seen the most strike activity that we've seen in a generation. Um, and I'll, I'll just list off some of the big strikes that have either that either already are underway and are continuing that just ended or that are have been threatened. Right. SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. They've been on strike since July. That's Hollywood is still largely shut down. I know that there is a, a last, best, and final offer from the studios right now. We'll see what ends up happening with that. Uh, culinary Union and Bartenders Union in Las Vegas has threatened a strike. I just saw a tweet that suggests that they, they're planning to go on strike four days from when we are recording this. We're recording this on November 6th in the afternoon, so maybe as soon as the 10th. Right on Veterans Day, we could see a strike in Vegas. Uh, the workers at the casino hotels in Detroit, Michigan, already on strike. National Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions just won a strike, got a nice, robust wage increase and some staffing guarantees. That's the big issue, as you know, in healthcare. The teachers in Portland, Oregon, 
are on strike. 4,000 UAW members at Mack Truck are on strike. Uh, they rejected a contract that the company and their bargaining uh, committee approved. And of course, uh, everybody knows, everybody who follows the news at all knows that the UAW just settled its strike against the big three. 150,000 union members now will vote to, to ratify or not to ratify their agreements. My guess is that they will ratify the agreements with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. So, and let me just say, you all know better than I do, that's just a short list. There's a lot more that are out there going on right now. So um, my sense is that if you take all that together, something has changed. So what I'm hoping you're going to help us to understand is what is the change? Is this hot labor 2023 <laughs> as opposed to hot labor summer or hot labor spring? Or is it the new normal? Um, and, and that question has led a lot of folks, including me, to write about what is causing so many strikes. Why are we having so many strikes? So, so I want to turn to that question. And Kim, I want to, let me start with you. What do you think is, has led to this generational level of strike activity? And do you think it's going to last? Is it the new normal? Yeah, I think, honestly, as the great Fannie Lou Hamer once said, to paraphrase, I think a lot of people are just fed up and sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, we're at this point where we've seen these big strikes. We've seen a ton of coverage around these big strikes, these big campaigns, these very familiar public-facing campaigns, too, whether it's, you know, the victories we've seen at Amazon or at Starbucks Workers United. It's become very personal in a way to a lot of folks that maybe don't think about unions that much or aren't from a union tradition, a union family, it's kind of hard to ignore at this point. And I think the more successful strikes we're seeing, the more great union contracts we're seeing, the more labor unrest in general we're seeing, that's giving more and more people, more workers, kind of the almost the permission to get involved themselves. Not that anyone needs permission, but I think I think back to my experience when I was organizing back at my old job. And I never thought of myself as a worker or anything like that till I started talking to union organizers. And they really just shifted my whole perception of my life and my labor and the value of those things. And I think we're still seeing the reverberations of that great shift we saw earlier in the pandemic. You know, it's been, it's been building for a long time. And I don't think it's going anywhere because first of all, workers are winning. And it's hard to argue with that. And second of all, like, people are pissed I'm, I'm trying really hard not to, to mess with the pg-13 rating here people people are fed up with all the bs <laughs> that we're dealing with <laughs> and i think they've just kind of realized that the only tool we really have as workers and poor people is to unionize to work collectively to harness that collective power because no one else has our backs no one else is looking out for us all we can depend on is ourselves and i think that's a very very important lesson for a lot of people to have learned over the past few years. Jordan, what do you think? So, so uh, Kim's take is it's the new normal that people are learning strikes. And I think that this is just empirically true. Strikes are a contagious condition. Folks see other workers striking and winning and they, they, they say, Hey, I can do that. My coworkers and I can do that. What do you think? Is it a new normal? Or uh, if, for example, if unemployment goes up, does all this go away? You know, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think, first of all, people are pissed off. So I think, Kim, just, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's right there. And I think that's why we saw people start to unionize a couple of years ago. Those numbers went up big time, right? Before we saw all these huge strikes, we saw people start to unionize a lot more, whether it's Amazon or Starbucks. And, you know, I think a lot of times what happened was 2021, 2022, now we're in like the kind of the third year of it. There were a lot of bad contracts also. People got stuck in bad contracts, uh, whether it was like the big three, whether it was people at factories uh, that, you know, I, I just did one in Memphis uh, covering them that they are IFF, International Flavors and um, Flavors and Fragrances. Sorry, I always get the S messed up. But uh, they, they were, you know, they were striking because they were bought by another big conglomerate was trying to like, you know, trying to take advantage of them. And so I think there's an element of like, we had bad contracts before, the labor market's different now. We are pissed off more now because we're seeing like, um, you know, because prices are going up and because we're being taken advantage of. And because like, again, like Kim said, people are doing it. People are seeing it. I think there is a permission structure that, that happens there. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that like, it's hard to strike it, you know, it costs people a lot of money. It's exhausting. But um, I think by seeing the victories happening, people stick with it longer and are more willing to do it too. I mean, a lot of times you look at the um, you know, teamsters didn't strike, but 
they did, you know, did, did threaten and they like, did lots of picketing and, you know, people at FedEx who were, like, they have a lot of trouble unionizing because of different laws there, but, you know, they're like, wait, why, where's our, where's our big payday? Where's our big paycheck? You see Amazon drivers now going to the Teamsters and, you know, they're starting to picket. And so I think that when you see the possibilities, you see the numbers that are happening at these huge companies, uh, again, with the UAW, right? And all these, uh, you know, smaller car companies, all of a sudden the people that are not, they didn't want to unionize before, but they feel like, hey, we can go out and get after it. I think that makes a big difference as well. So like uh, winning is contagious as well. Michael, what do you think? Well, I'm hearing a lot of optimism and uh, <laughs> that the new labor activism is here to stay. Are you, do you share the optimism? Yeah, I, I do, uh, especially because uh, a lot of the big strikes have been so successful in getting a lot of gains that uh, before the strikes were happening, uh, the employers were putting out messaging that they weren't going to or willing to uh, you know, meet those demands. And, you know, next year we have some, uh, some of the big contracts that expire. Uh, we have Yahtzee workers. So, uh, those Hollywood work crew workers are going to be looking for the same gains. The writers got, uh, Boeing's contracts are up. Those workers are going to be looking for, you know, gains that the auto workers, uh, you know, experience and, uh, you know, being a, a worker, just being able to see those gains, see that, that activity and see what's possible uh, it is going to have, um, and I think what we've seen is going to have uh, reverberating effects in organizing and strike activity and people just you know being interested and supportive of unions as a vehicle to uh, combat the, the greed, the, the profit of co corporations and the, the terrible wealth and equality that, you know, we've all you know, I, I think we, I can speak for Jordan and Kim. We've all grown up, um, you know, having to experience and, and witness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting that you phrase it that way. We were talking, Michael and I were talking before we started about uh, how this generation of labor reporters is younger than the last generation that was covering this kind of activity, say 25 years ago, you had a lot of longtime labor, older labor reporters. And that's sort of fitting because you have a lot of really young workers who are playing a very, very important role in the organizing that we're seeing, the strikes that we're seeing uh, all around the country. But Michael, I wanna, I wanna stick with you because I, I wanna, uh, you're all at risk when you come on the blogcast of having your words quoted back to you. So Michael gets that this time. So Michael, after the UAW deal was announced, you published a piece arguing, and, and I'll quote you, uh, you said, quote, labor in the U.S. is still facing significant obstacles and challenges in transforming the popular culture shift into gains against the backdrop of decades of union decline, worsening wealth inequality, and broken labor laws. So elaborate on what you think those obstacles are and... Uh, and I'm going to ask Jordan and Kim to respond to it. And l let me actually add a second piece to your question, Michael. So what are the obstacles is the first part. The second part is, are, is part of the reason you think this is the new normal is that you're seeing unions overcome the obstacles? I'm seeing unions not only overcome the obstacles, but be more willing to, to you know, take them on. Uh, d despite those obstacles. And what I mean is, uh, you know, the political obstacles we face and uh, fixing the broken labor laws we have in the U.S. and uh, holding uh, employers accountable for violating labor laws. Uh, right now, they're kind of doing that uh, with impunity. And, and another piece of that is just the uh, huge war chests that uh, employers and billionaires put into union busting, uh, the union cons uh, avoidance consulting industry, uh, misinformation, uh, lobbyists, um, you know, that are, you know, uh, spread pushing, um, you know, anti-worker laws. Uh, we've seen it on the child labor front, a lot of red states rolling back child labor protections. Um, you know, I, I, I live in Florida. DeSantis passed, a, um, you know, earlier this year, a, a law that attacks public unions. Um, and so, you know, uh, in, in the U.S., union density has been declining. And because of the workforce grows so much, it you need to add more workers to that to even just keep it 
from from declining. So uh, you know th those those are you know some of the obstacles, the the demographics, the the political landscape, um, just the the gridlock, uh, the fact that we're dealing with uh, a Republican Party that uh, you know during Eisenhower, you know they weren't as narrowly it's a different kind of anti-worker uh sentiments uh you know we've seen it in some of the, just the presidential republican primaries where uh every candidate uh was trying to attack teachers unions so um they, there are you know challenges to um you know overcoming and, and translating that um you know the record support since the you know the 60s for unions people wanting to unionize um you know, even um you know labor experts have been saying this workers want to unionize but there's impediments there's obstructions uh there's obstacles uh preventing them from doing so or preventing them from um you know having their rights to organize in the workplace be protected uh you know we we the, the House passed the PRO Act, um, but, you know, it didn't reach the Senate. And with the political makeup, it doesn't seem like uh, there's going to be any Republicans that are willing to, to sign on to any pro-worker uh, legislation. But it, it's going to, I think, take uh, a, a lot of new organizing, uh, a lot of funding and some creativity to figure out um, how we can um take that that support for the labor movement and um start manifesting that into to gains whether it's in in states where the political landscape is uh you know uh easier for for unions to gain some ground or um it, just uh you know taking the fight to to specific employers like um you know what we're seeing starbucks workers doing it despite uh you know what they've been going through uh, since 20, the end of 2021. So Kim, same question for you. The, the obstacles for worker organizing are well known. You've written about some of them. Um, is your optimism about worker organizing and being the new normal and strike activity and, you know, worker militancy being the new normal, does that take into account that there are all these obstacles out there? And do you think it's that the labor movement's going to overcome them or what, what, what? Why, why aren't you looking at the obstacles and saying, oh, no? <laughs> PMA, right? got to stay positive. Um, you got to keep, <laughs> I mean, you've got to stay hopeful because otherwise, you know, the only other option is giving up, um, especially as someone who spent a really long time reading and writing about centuries of labor history. Something that keeps me going and does keep me optimistic is the fact that none of this is necessarily new, right? Like, one could even argue that our labor laws are in the best shape they've ever been. And we know they're jacked up. So imagine how much worse things were 100 years ago, right? And I think one of the things that does interest me and give me, I guess, I suppose, inspiration or optimism in this moment is the fact that worker, workers know that the deck is stacked against them, whether they're trying to organize at a billion dollar company or they're misclassified or they're in an industry that doesn't have a traditional, like a tradition of unionizing and they're doing it anyway. I think one of the most interesting and I think important projects we're seeing right now, um, I want to shout out the Union of Southern Service Workers who are kind of operating on this solidarity unionism model that we associate more closely with the IWW. But they're a, a group of hundreds, if I think thousands now, of service workers at fast food restaurants and retail locations across the South. It's worker-led, it's predominantly black and brown workers in low-income jobs. And they've been striking and protesting and organizing. They are interested in getting the NLRB stamp of approval. They know the labor laws are stacked against them, especially in a lot of the southern states where they're located. But they're doing it anyway. I think that attitude is something that is really invigorating in this moment. The fact that workers know, okay, laws say we can't do this. Tradition says we can't do this. Even labor experts or whoever says we can't do this. But what if we try anyway? Or what if we just do it? And that's the kind of spirit that has gotten us to this point throughout the centuries, right? No one has ever won a strike or won a victory or gotten us anywhere closer to progress by waiting for permission. You know, especially in this country, like which, as Michael so eloquently laid out, uh, things are not great for the uh, for the American worker. It's really difficult to get anything decent done. 
especially in this current political climate where god i think probably the only thing you could recommend about a joe biden second term at this point is the fact that they will continue having an nlrb that actually seems to care about workers and is interested in advancing um it's not legislation don't really do that the recommendations um to to get around some of these these missteps we've seen in the legislative or like judicial whatever government world for decades I mean, that's inspiring and exciting in its own way. Uh, it's kind of sad that we have to be excited about what a government agency is up to in terms of keeping the labor movement thriving. But, you know, you, we, we're taking what we can get. And thankfully, workers have realized that we can actually get quite a lot if we're willing to get creative and militant and maybe not listen to the people that tell us it's too hard or it hasn't been done before, so don't bother. So, Jordan, is it too hard and it's never been done before, so don't bother? Is that uh, your <laughs> message or? Uh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking, that, of course. Kim, I'm... <laughs> That's right. Kim, Kim take your earbuds out. No, but I, 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 I do want to I, I want to take seriously the point that Michael made and, and that and that I think that Kim is acknowledging, uh, but is still really optimistic. Um, and that is that, man, oh, man, it's hard to organize a union in America. And goodness sakes, you are taking your career and maybe your life in your hands if you go out on strike. Um, you're certainly risking your family's economic position if you go out on strike, maybe less in these in a situation where we have very tight labor markets, very low unemployment. Um, but you're certainly risking your relationship with your employer and, and Americans are dependent on their employers for wages and a lot of other things. Uh, your health insurance, you know, if you have a kid who's sick or if you have, uh, you know, your own health conditions, you know, you're at real risk if you do that. Um, you know, the wealth and power is overwhelmingly loaded on the side of uh, wealthy corporations and their shareholders. Um, so how is it? Uh, is it that workers are overcoming those obstacles? And if so, how are they doing it? You know, and I think you're both Michael and Kim are really correct in that, like, there is this great optimism, but there are also these these roadblocks, right, that um, you either have to go over or around. I think we're seeing, you know, to some degree, like, roadblocks are getting in the way of, let's say, Starbucks, right? They have 300 plus uh, stores that have been unionized, but just the brutality of the anti-union campaign, just, you know, historically awful, and it certainly slowed things down. And NLRB can say, hey, that was illegal, that was illegal, that was illegal, they keep doing it, they keep doing it. But, you know, uh, until there's some teeth there, uh, at which, you know, we need the proactive pass for the be the case and that doesn't seem to be happening then you know there are there will be difficult difficulties i mean we see the amazon they had the historic victory there and you know, that's sort of whether it's from internal or from both like internal and external reasons like you know it sort of uh fizzled a little bit although they had some recent action there i was there in staten island so excited to see that so there definitely are these difficulties right there's only so much the government can do um you know we see with the joint employer law that our joint employer rule that the nlrb just came out with like that will be huge if uh, if they're able to, you know, implement it, right? That'll be something that where McDonald's and every other fast food franchise, whether you're, uh, if you work there or if you work at Amazon, but you really don't actually work for Amazon because you're working for some contractor that does the driving, FedEx, like uh, they will be able to unionize, they'll be able to strike contracts. And so those are these great opportunities, whether or not they can come into, you know, into being, whether they can be implemented, whole other story. Um, but I also think that we're seeing things that uh, can mention, you know, a group that not even going through the NLRB, right? We see, uh, you could add a lot of things to that. You see all the pharmacists that went out, you know, walk out in the last couple of weeks or so. Like, there is this element of, even if you're not officially organized, you don't have a CBA. Because uh, you see the big CBA victories are coming from uh, unions that are been there a really long time. You know, whether you're the UAW or Teamsters, like, there or UFCW, like, they obviously already have this relationship. They're creating these contracts. But there's a lot of, like, people taking action and maybe doing it in a way that like avoids trouble. You know, I've been working with a lot of pharmacists who, you know, they are willing to, you know, show part of their face on a sign, right. And, and you know, make, make noise and to walk out of work, but obviously they don't want to identify themselves, which is understandable. I mean, you know, um, but there is this spirit of people going after it, whether or not there is a legal, like, well, they have the, not the legal right to, but legal advantages to doing so. And so I think that like that spirit, I hope continues and, you know, hopefully a pro act passes. I mean, you know, we uh, like, I don't know what's gonna happen in the next election. It doesn't seem like it's gonna be a great democratic majority. And then again, we've seen trifectas where it didn't pass anyway. So, uh, you know, but I also think that uh, politicians are now having to wake up a little bit and cater to labor. Whereas you know, for a long time, uh, you know, labor was just sort of like the ground game for a lot of uh, kind of crappy politicians. 
And so, you know, one thing we did at MPU was try and force them out to the picket line and say, hey, you guys got to show up. And, um, you know, some, some do it more than others and uh, more willingly than others. Um, there's certain governors, I think, in my home state that seem, um, you know, a little bit contrived when they go there. But um, we'll leave that to the side. But, you know, they have to do it. And I think we're seeing that more and more. And I think because of that, you know, Illinois just passed, like, a you know, constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to organize. So I think that, like, take wins where you can get them, especially on the state level. It's going to be difficult in a lot of ways, federal level, unless, like, some great miracle happens. But I just think the energy of people who are even going around it, like Kim mentioned, is, is really, really positive. Yeah, well, that's, boy, this is a, a much more optimistic uh, broadcast than I expected that we were going to get. But I, I love the analysis that all of you are, are giving. So um, I want to I take, take on some questions that, that get to labor journalism, that really emphasize the journalism in addition to the labor. Uh, and I want to start with the question, are we spending too much time focusing on strikes? And one of the premises of creating this blog is that the mainstream media likes to cover labor only when there's either a lot of conflict, corruption, or politics involved, right? They like to portray unions in ways that are really not the norm for how unions operate. The norm of unions is representing workers in the workplace, collective bargaining, helping workers to get their problems in the workplace resolved, playing a role in their communities, playing a role in local politics as well as national politics. It's not all who they endorsed at the presidential level, that, and it's also not all about strikes. So I, I want to take on that question of whether we're focusing too much on strikes. And let me start with you on this, Jordan. Um, what is the biggest and most important story about labor and worker power right now, regardless of whether you're personally covering it? You know, I think so. I think that in terms of strikes, I think that there's an element of like, there's a lot of them, which is like they're being covered. You know, I think like that winds up, you know, being positive. People run to the picket lines. And I think that one thing that I've really been inspired to see is the way that the leadership in a lot of the unions have changed. We see John Fain becoming president in a very close, uh, very close election of the UAW, right? We see, you know, um, Sean O'Brien becoming president of the Teamsters. I guess just elect people named Sean and it's all good. Um, USCW may, may have a change in their leadership and a BCTGM may. And so I think that that change, um, and I mean, union leaders have been under siege for so many years. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say like, they're all, all terrible, they're all bums. But I think that new energy coming into the unions has really like, enabled the rank and file to be much more involved to feel much better i remember a couple of years ago working on this you know covering a strike where a local was very unhappy about having to like settle for a contract and you know just they, they were kind of had to push through and that is you know uh, the uaw had to push you know they pushed through a contract in 2018 i think and so i think that new energy within internally and seeing union members like really going forward and making sure that they have these new leaders that kind of have their backs and you know, or at least be willing to be aggressive. I don't want to say oh, other leaders didn't have their backs, but willing to be like more aggressive, demand more, be public about it the way that they you know, weren't before. I think that is really huge because that's kind of the key to everything in this sense. Like, you know, they are, you know, waking up in a way to along with workers. Yeah. And the, to me, the leadership change is a reflection of a change in the way the workers are viewing the world. It's not that the leaders are changing and they're persuading workers to be more militant. The reason you have Sean Fain and Sean O'Brien is because the members of those unions, as, as uh, Kim said, are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they wanted their, their leadership to take that approach, I think. And you're seeing that in, in, a, in a lot of unions now. Michael, what is, let me ask you, what, is the, what are the stories that are the big stories that we're not talking about enough right now? What should we be, uh, or even if we are talking about them, I mean, Jordan's point was that, you know, certainly there was coverage of sh the two Sean's winning their elections. What are the biggest labor stories that are out there right now that maybe are not about strikes or are strikes the big story? And we should just, that's what we should be talking about. You know, I, I think a big one right now is what's happening in uh, Gaza and how uh, workers are either standing up to speak out about it. Uh, there are workers who have faced and are facing retaliation just for signing on to a letter. I, you know, this weekend, a New York Times uh, magazine columnist uh, was forced to resign for signing the letter. Um, there was this morning um, uh, 
protest at the port uh, of Tacoma and, you know, one of the workers reportedly, uh, you know, got off the ship, didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and, you know, in Barcelona, there were uh, workers who refused to uh, move uh, weapon shipments to, to Israel. So I, I think, um, you know, obviously how the labor movement plays a role in these protests and and um, in, in what's going on and how, you know, these power, the power dynamics within the workplaces are, are used on by, you know, employers and, and workers to, um, you know, speak out about that. And, and I think that's um, also kind of can have like positive effects in determining like how uh, much work, you know, impacts our, our lives, uh, you know, and, and I think that's what, uh, that is part of this favorability towards unions and, and um you know, everything else that's go in this kind of culture shift in terms of, uh, you know, we've seen it through the pandemic, the, the quiet quitting and that kind of stuff uh, is just rethinking and kind of coming to a, a bigger understanding of how much, um, you know, what, how much power each worker actually has uh, with the labor they produce uh, and how, you know, they're uh, typically we're you know, taken for granted uh, uh, culturally just, uh, you know, supposed to be robotic of listen to your boss listen to what the employers say but that's uh you know not the case and that's not how progress gets made so i, I think uh all those different facets are just you know a, a big thing to keep an eye on um you know in the coming future yeah i so i i want to echo certainly that last point about workers feeling their power maybe for the first time in a long time you know they you know workers go to work in these autocratic workplaces where their their opinion, if they're non-union, doesn't really matter very much. And in fact, voicing your opinion can get you fired, uh, legally fired. Um, and they encounter a lot of institutions in their lives where their voice just doesn't matter. Uh, ironically, in a, in a country that touts itself as a democracy, at least for now. Um, and and now workers are realizing that they actually do have power. They can quit their job. They can speak up. They can organize. And for a lot of workers, it's a new feeling. Uh, they have not had this experience before. They haven't seen it before. Uh, they certainly, uh, many of them haven't seen a union before. One of the consequences of having low union density is a lot of workers are not union members, have never been union members, and have, don't have a family member who's ever been a union member. They don't know what it looks like and what the experience is like. And, and I, I, I get the sense, I, and I agree with you in this way, they're trying it out. And they're seeing it can work. All right, so let's talk about you all, your worker power and your industry and occupation. And by that, I mean, let's talk about worker power and unions in journalism. Uh, of course, uh, there's been a strike going on at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for more than a year now. Um, uh, there was a strike at the New York Times just the other day of tech workers, not journalists. They walked off the job because of uh, the New York Times' return to office uh, policy. Um, what is, Kim, what's your sense of worker power in the journalism industry right now? Um, and, uh, you know, is, is it just the consequence or whatever is happening right now? Is it the consequence of an industry that's just facing immense economic pressure or is there something else going on? I know that there's been a lot of organizing over the past few years. My union, the Writers Guild of America East, we kind of kickstarted a lot of the digital media organizing back in 2015 when my old workplace, Vice, joined a bunch of other places. And then the News Guild has really been running with it ever since. And speaking of, you know, more progressive, reform-minded union leadership, John uh, John Schloes, Schloes, I'm probably saying his name wrong, he's going to kill me, but the president of the News Guild, he is... Uh, very fiery, very militant, very supportive of strikes and of aggressive contract negotiations and really just going for it in ways that perhaps we hadn't seen from newspaper union leadership in a while. But I think it's impossible to be someone reporting on the news and living in this moment and being part of a union and not want to get involved yourself, right? If you're reporting on other workers who are constantly trying to improve their economics and their their workplaces and just seeing all the things that are happening like of course you're going to want to get something a little bit better for yourself too and i'm i'm in a funny position where i'm a freelancer 
but I'm in a union, but I can't really, it's, it's like, it's a weird position, you know, independent contractor, all that, love to be classified that way. But it's just so heartening to see um, my fellow journalists who are union, who are able to both report on the news and also take part in the movements. I, it's, I think it's just really great. I think objectivity is fake and it is ridiculous to expect uh, journalists who are workers to not have some kind of pro-labor sentiment, pro-worker sentiment. Any publication that's trying to get you to do that is not worth the paper or the pixels it's printed on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to hear what the what the fellows have to say. I'm just back in my Pollyanna uh, unionize everything kind of box for this one. Well, Jordan, let's talk about you. More Perfect Union is unionized. Uh, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, they just got a contract. The union just got a contract with management. Um, I have to admit, I happen to know management, and they're kind of they're kind of pushovers. Is my my sense? They're yeah, I mean, yeah, easy I mean, easy to bargain with. It was uh, nothing. But, I negotiated with them it was no big deal. <laughs> but uh, I hope I hope Faz is not watching this. I'm kidding, so let's. Of course, uh, yes, of course, of course you are. He's kidding, Faz. Um, but let's uh, let's talk about the industry more generally. The the information industry, the newspaper industry, what, what, to the extent it's still newspaper industry, sure. but the journalism industry. Um, Kim is right. There's been a huge amount of organizing, particularly at digital outlets and among digital workers at traditional outlets. Uh, but there's also been a lot of consolidation, a lot of closures, a lot of job loss. Um, and so what does that mean for worker power in the journalism industry? Yeah, there's, it's a strange dichotomy, right? You've got these, you've got, at one point, you've got a, a new generation uh, of young and nearing middle age uh, labor reporters, right? Or people who are like really care about this stuff, whether they're actually labor reporters or not. Uh, they report with that, you know, with that vision of it. And there's also the I, the fact that there's so much consolidation and so many layoffs, right? And so many people got who've lost their jobs in the last bunch of years. I mean, uh, during COVID, during like the, you know, the, the beginning of COVID, like, I mean, I lost my job, but so many people lost their jobs, whether it was the beginning or it was an excuse to, you know, uh, do some bloodletting. And so, you know, I think that also helped inspire a lot of the organizing, right? I remember, and I, now I'm getting myself but back to 2012, 2013, the, the pivot to video, so many places just getting wiped out, uh, you know, and ironically, I work in video now, but uh, we never pivoted to it. We're just there. But, um, you know, so many places getting wiped out, right? And I think that helped inspire, and, and Kim can speak to, you know, like organizing uh, journalism and uh, organizing journalists. Um, and I think that helped create an environment where people started to want to organize and that hopefully changed and I think did change people's attitudes. Um, and now as there's more roll-ups of the industry as, you know, whether it's uh, newspapers or magazines or what have you, like there is this pushback now, right? Whether it was like, I remember Fusion, right? They, they try to, they try to get rid of all those people and they blast in the past saying that, but you know, there's a union there. So they were able to like get at least a better deal. I know Vice is trying to deal with uh, their unions, trying to deal with management there. And so there is this, um, the industry, I don't know like the future of it, but I do know that like people are more organized and willing to push back in a way they couldn't before. It felt like a lot, a lot of times you're just sort of like off into the wild, right? You just cut, a, uh, you just cut off, and you're able to just start trying to swim and trying to find a you know way to get a paycheck. And I've been through that myself many times before, and so I think there's definitely more solidarity there, and I think it's also um, to some degree helped create a better coverage of labor. I think that you know a lot of times for a long time there's this coverage of business as you know the, the great. American enterprise is a great reason for being, uh, and you know, business people were the geniuses and the, the people who were giving so much to the world, whether it was Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos and even Elon Musk a few years ago. But I think that like they have, there's been a skepticism there, and I think that that's, you know, because they're all buffoons, but also because there's a element of like, um, you know, it, you can't avoid like you've been you've been laid off by the Washington Post, you've been laid off by so many places, you can't avoid but to feel a certain way, or that you know, if you've been organizing, you can't avoid that. So. I do think coverage has changed. I think it needs to continue to change because, you know, there's still plenty of places that, you know, uh, are objective in a way that just, you know, will, will prize management over workers or uh, put what they say on the same level. And it's clear that, you know, Howard Schultz saying he's never uh, done any union busting is, I, I don't think you need to print that, but people still do. Um, but, you know, we're getting there and getting there. And I'm, again, you know, like the fact is like, it's still a rough industry. It's still hard to make a living, but there's definitely more solidarity there. And I think that can only be a good thing. Jordan, terrific. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Worker power inside journalism. Um, uh, the industry has shrunk some. It's grown in some areas. Um, and in the areas where it's growing, it's it's dominated by younger workers. And is that a part of the story of the journalism industry? 
You know, I, I, I think so. And I think just um, there's always going to be challenges, especially with how fast everything's changed just in our, um, you know, lifetimes um, and, you know, things on the horizon that um, are going to impact us to a, a certain extent, uh, whether that's AI or, or things like that. Um, and, and we're, you know, the media is still grappling with the fact that uh, the big companies like Facebook and Google and uh, Twitter and things like that, uh, you know, they, they take a bite out of media revenue. So they're, they're profiting and operating on the work that people like us do. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's our employers or ourselves aren't seeing, um, you know, much of those gains. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, the, just the uh, opposite of that, uh, to, to counter all of those, uh, you know, challenges, all those obstacles we're facing, it's, it has come to, like, people need to organize, people need to rely on ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we've seen that in, in layoffs, um, you know, like Jordan and Kim mentioned, you know, what happened at Vice, uh, BuzzFeed, um, you know, the, the owners of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gizmodo's um, parent company, um, you know, what they've did, done is really just hollowed out the, those new newsrooms, uh, you know, and, and that's the same old story with, uh, you know, a lot of employers that they're going to, um, you know, they don't know uh, how to work in this industry, what's best for this industry, but, um, you know, the, the people doing the reporting, the workers do, uh, and, you know, yeah, I think it's come to, uh, you know, people realizing that and developing different ways, whether it's uh, organizing as freelancers or, you know, organizing newsgroups uh, and, and um, you know, figuring out and learning that, uh, you know, this job is always evolving, always changing. And uh, the people that know the best way to uh, improve those things and get the best out of, um, you know, journalism and do the work is uh, us ourselves. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, just a symptom of, of that kind of that, that growing realization, uh, you know, whether it's forced or just out of a necessity to all the pressures that we face. Yeah, well, there's a radical idea that workers actually know how to do their jobs best. How about that? That's a pretty, <laughs> let's, let's, somebody needs to write an article about that. I like that a lot. Okay, uh, we're, we're running long because of our technical challenges, but I, 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 we always ask our labor reporters to finish up on one question. So just spend a sentence or two on this question, and I'll go uh, in the line as I have you lined up, Michael Jordan and then Kim. So the question is this, what is the next big story in 2024 that we're not talking about, and labor story? Let me rephrase that. What is the next big labor story in 2024 that we are not talking about in 2023? Real quick, Michael. Oh, that's a, a difficult qu question, but I, I think that the, what we're not talking about in 2023 is just next year coming to ahead all these big union campaigns. How will the NLRB respond? Because a lot of like Starbucks appeals, Amazon appeals, they're at their last appeal. So it's going to be, uh, we're going to, you know, finally see, uh, okay, uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, lost their final appeals and not bargaining Amazon. Uh, you know, they're still fighting the, the union election uh, that workers won Staten Island, and they're still fighting the rerun, the second rerun election in Alabama. So we'll, we'll get answers to that. And I think what happens in, in those cases, it might it's not going to get as much attention as uh, when those first things first happened. But I, I think uh, how the NLRB, how the government responds and uh, what, if any, accountability um, you know, Amazon and, and Starbucks and, and similar companies like Trader Joe's, you know, Chipotle that's gotten away with a lot of uh, union busting, um, seeing those, the legal processes and their uh, appeals finally come to a head and uh, whether there's going to be some resolution, you know, that will benefit workers or if it's just going to be like, uh, you know, too bad. Uh, you know, that's the way it is. So yeah. uh, I think that's, that's, that's a good one. A big story for it for next year. That, 
That's a good one. Jordan, big story in 2024. We're not talking about the biggest story in 2024. We're not talking about in 2023. Yeah, I mean, I was going to agree with Michael. Like, whether they get contracts or not, a lot of these places, I mean, it's going to be huge, um, both for, like, those workers themselves, the ability to organize continuously. If, if like, you know, Starbucks ends up not ha having a contract, that is sort of like um, there's so many thousands of stores that just aren't going to organize. Um, I think also one thing I've always been, I've been very intrigued by is if we look at it 2024, obviously the elections are so important. Um, I'm very intrigued by this idea that, you know, Republicans are trying to be populist now and they're, they're all they're pro-worker. And obviously I don't think that's at all true, but I, I'm very interested to see how the rhetoric that's used, right? I know Biden, like Kim said, the one good thing that he's done, maybe the one thing he would recommend a second term is a, a, another, NL, uh, another NLRB under, under, uh, his, under his watchful eye. But um, how much that, you know, this rhetoric is going to shift because I think that, you know, how much like proposals are going to shift, right? Like we've seen like J.D. Vance try and, you know, secretly probably gut the uh, the train track, uh, the train uh, deal that he, he came up with, the railroad deal. But I'm very curious just to know like how much politicians are picking up on it, whether they are Democrats or Republicans, right? Like there is this element of like traditionally uh, unions, you know, um, support Democrats. And I think that like, you know, they have in a lot of ways, like, you know, Biden, especially, I think has been good about that, but there's still plenty of them that don't. Democrats don't, definitely don't turn out in the way that they should. And I think a lot of union members are up for grabs. And I think that, like, you know, Trump tried to exploit it during the UAW uh, thing, and he kind of got his clock cleaned because he <laughs> went to a non-union shop with no union workers there. So um, that, that was a big fail. But, um, you know, we're still seeing, you know, Republicans are still powered by the Koch brothers. And I guess it's only one Koch now, the Koch, the Koch guy. Um, but you know, um, the, I, I, so yeah, that, I think that's really, it'll be interesting to me, like how much rhetoric changes and then how much the you know, policy could change after that, because, um, that's, you know. that's, that's, that's intriguing. So you were not persuaded by Josh Hawley going to the picket line. You didn't, that the Republican party has moved all the way over to be pro-union. That well, didn't he, persuade you. I'm still learning how to be a man from him. So once I'm done with that, I'm going to see very, what he does with labor. Very, very good. <laughs> well, maybe you could do a workshop or something. Yeah. Kim. Kim, what's the big story, labor story of 2024 that we're not talking about in 2023? I certainly hope people will be talking about it. I think we'll be talking about it for the next few years, like the next decade probably, um, is this idea of the just transition and what we're seeing in terms of this slow but kind of in unstoppable shift towards renewable energy. Uh, I've spent the past couple of years covering coal miners in the deep south and in Appalachia. And one way to become very interested in the plans for the workers who are involved in these extractive industries as we move towards a greener future is to talk to a lot of coal miners yeah. and to talk to oil refinery workers in the Bay and in the, um, in the Gulf. Like I'm, I'm interested in seeing what actual concrete solutions are going to be proposed and perhaps even implemented or offered to the workers that are going to be left behind for this. I mean, we saw some, I mean, there's been some chatter about it already because of what happened with the UAW contract with the um, the the battery the battery operating plants being pulled under their master agreement. That's a big deal. And I'm just wondering, I'm sure a lot of people smarter than me are wondering, okay, but where do we go from here? As you know, as time goes on, as the world continues to burn, we gotta make some changes. We all know that, but there's still a lot of people, a lot of workers who are seeing their livelihoods kind of hang in this political balance. And I am really interested in following their stories and seeing what happens, because obviously we need to change a whole bunch of stuff. But I want to make sure that, you know, my, my friends in, in Maitland, West Virginia, aren't left behind because there are a lot of yeah. people that have been left behind in this country. And that's how we get into these political messes that continue to consume us right now. Yeah, and let me just say, your reporting already on that issue, I think, has been absolutely <laughs> essential. It's a worker-level uh journalism about one of the most important issues in our society right now. Can't thank you enough for being here. Kim Kelly, you can find her at Teen Vogue, and let me just say everywhere. She publishes everywhere. Jordan Sakarian, <laughs> More Perfect Union, More Perfect U.S., Michael Sonato. You can find him at The Guardian. They're terrific. Read their stuff, tweet their stuff, or whatever you do on X. Post their stuff. It's terrific. It's essential. Thank you all for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Hell yeah. Like I told you, another terrific Labor Reporters Roundtable. Uh, thanks for joining us for it. Um, you know, you can stay connected to the Power at Work blog by linking up with us, following us, connecting with us on social media. Uh, the first thing you should do, though, is subscribe to the blog. 
go to the front page of the blog down at the bottom, give us your name, give us your affiliation, give us your email address, and we'll keep you updated about the content that's on the blog. We'll also send you the weekly download, which is a collection of labor news from across the internet. We do that once a week. Um, but you can also connect with us on social media, uh, at Power at Work blog on Twitter X, at Power at Work blog on Threads, uh, Power at Work blog on Instagram, on TikTok. Uh, we have pages on LinkedIn and Facebook, Power at Work blog. Just search Power at Work blog. You'll find it on LinkedIn and Facebook. You can follow us in either of those places. We also post regularly on LinkedIn and Facebook. So if you follow us, you'll be able to see those posts. They will bring you back here to the blog. Um, we'd really like to connect with you. If you have something that you think we need to be covering, we need to be talking about, if you have video or audio or something you've written that you think that we should be sharing with our audience, please connect with us, send us a direct message, message through those channels, and we will take a look at it. We'll give it every due consideration. And if it's really good, we will help to get it out there. We just did that with some fabulous videos from the legal department of the International, International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. It was great. It's getting a great response. We'd love to do that with your worker-focused, worker-power-focused, union-focused material as well. So let us know about it. Send it to us, and we'll take a look at it. I promise we'll take a serious look at it. And if it's really good, we'll get it out there uh, to our viewers. So thanks very much for joining this broadcast. Thanks for hanging around till the very end. Really enjoyed having you here. We'll get you back on the blog real soon. Thanks.